Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists in this moment of COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, Zooming and Facebook live streaming with you right now from Dorchester, Massachusetts, well into our third month of COVID shelter in place. Today's show, our seventh episode of Shelter and Solidarity, focuses on public institutions under attack, the threats to the common good. We'll be joined by a member from, of two different public institutions, one, the Postal Service, the U.S. Postal Service, and the other, a representative from public higher education here at UMass Boston, located right in my backyard and also my own workplace. In the United States, even in good times, public institutions struggle for the respect, the funding, and the support that they deserve. In moments of emergency, such as this COVID pandemic, those long-standing problems can quickly arise into acute crises as emergency funding demands and other unforeseen contingencies expose structural problems that have been lingering for a long time. Both the U.S. Postal Service and public higher education can be seen as cases in point for this long, you know, this widely applicable phenomenon. In addition, pandemics like the COVID pandemic pose the question and the threat of people in powerful places, in private sector corporations, as well as in, in government positions, using the fear and the momentum of an unprecedented crisis to push pre-existing agendas that threaten to push our public institutions more and more into the hands of either literally the clutches of private for-profit corporations, or at least pushing public institutions to operate more and more as if they were private institutions themselves, rather than institutions committed to the public good. Our first guest today is Chuck Zlatkin, with us from New York City. Chuck is a labor organizer, postal worker organizer, and as I understand it, a New York Labor uh, com uh, Communications Council member. Uh, Chuck, uh, thank you so much for being with us today on Shelter and Solidarity. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great. It's great to have you and to have you at this moment. I think we're really lucky to have you and hope to learn a lot from you today. Chuck, I wonder if you could um, open by just introducing yourself a little bit to us in terms of your relationship to the, the Postal Service. What is the position that you hold? Uh, who is it that you represent? And you know, how did you come to this, to this place um, today? Okay, well, I was a postal worker for 35 years and I was also active in, in my union. And uh, I guess that's how I got involved. Uh, and why I'm here today was because of my activism and union activities. I uh, was a shop steward. I became the uh, 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 legislator and political director for my local. I went to uh, Washington for three years where I was the executive assistant for the president of the American Postal Workers Union. And then I came back uh, working again in my local as the legislative and political director for the New York Metro Area uh, Postal Union. So uh, that, that's you know, how I got involved. Uh, and here today, I think I got involved in the, in the struggle of fighting against privatization somewhere, I guess, in about 2009, 
when it became evident to me and others uh, what was uh, going on. I also want to point out that the one thing that most people don't know about the Postal Service is that uh, it receives no tax dollars. It gets nothing from the federal government, uh, at least that it's been since 1970 when it became an independent agency. And it was designed basically to uh, raise its uh, uh, operating uh, funds from uh, the, the stamps and, and services that it sold. So, uh, but today, uh, that's part of the reasons that we're, we're in, a, in a crisis uh, situation. Yeah, thanks for that, Chuck. I mean, what I wanted to ask you is precisely that you started to speak to, right? Most people, you know, um, think of the post office, they think of the people that are delivering their mail, you know, the day in, day out, uh, dropping off parcels and packages and their, their paper mail. Uh, I wonder what you would, you would want to add to people's, you know, understanding. What do you think is the, the most kind of misunderstood thing about the post office or something that, that people don't understand about the post office and its kind of fundamental importance to American society? Okay, well, uh, one thing is the Postal Service delivers to 159 million addresses six and sometimes seven days a week. Uh, and because it, it functions with universal service, that means it delivers to everybody. Wherever you live, whatever uh, uh, neighborhood, what your zip code is, what your uh, uh, income is, you're, you're entitled to and, and receive... Uh, uh, mail from your your postal service and I think what maybe people fail to understand is that the postal service has this mandate for universal service the private companies who are involved in uh, package delivery and other kinds of deliveries like uh, UPS or FedEx or DHL or whatever they don't have that requirement they basically only want to deliver where they can make a profit. But the Postal Service is delivering everywhere. And another aspect is, you know, part of the, um, uh, the uh, I guess, the narrative that, get, that they keep trying to get through to people's minds that somehow the Postal Service has been in you know, financial trouble. This was all a manufactured financial crisis originally, you know, created by Congress in 2006, serving the, the, the interests of, of the privatizers back then to create a situation that the Postal Service uh, would have uh, uh, financial troubles that could be exploited. Yeah, Chuck, could you say a little more about that? Are you referring to the, what I understand is the postal, so-called Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act of 2006? That's exactly it. That it, was, it was legislation passed during the lame duck Congress it was the last act of that Congress on a Saturday night uh, when most people were going home for the holidays or some people were going home forever. Most of the people who voted on voice vote in the House and Senate had no idea what they were voting on. And uh, then George, President George W. Bush signed it into, uh, in, into law. And what it did, among other things, it created a situation where the Postal Service had to fully pre-fund uh, health benefits for future retirees for the next 75 years, and they had to pay it off within a 10-year period. This is something that's not required of anybody, any other government agency. 
any other uh, any private co company organization or country for that matter nobody pre-funds benefits a hundred percent but the postal service was required to do that and that meant that the postal service every september 30th had to write a check to the u.s treasury for five and a half billion dollars which they were actually able to do until the financial crisis of 2008-9. So when they talk about the Postal Service losing money or being in debt or being behind, it was all created by this manufactured crisis of, uh, by Congress. And there are other elements within that legislation that also make things difficult for a public Postal Service to continue. They limited the amount of money that it could borrow in a crisis and they also put limits on uh, how they could raise prices that it had to be with the consumer price index only and also put limitations on the inability uh, to create any new products that unless it was directly related to an old product it, the postal service uh, couldn't bring about uh, uh, new ideas or an uh, yeah. ability to function yeah chuck i'd like to hear more about those some of those new ideas in a moment but maybe uh. before we go to that we could, um, you could maybe bring us up to date a little bit. I'm sure, you know, one of the reasons we decided to have this show and to invite you is because the Postal Service has been in the news a lot, right, of late, right, with the, right. the news that at least some by some projections, the current financial hit that the institution is taking because of diminished mail during COVID, right, in addition to these structured structural right. problems you pointed to, these manufactured problems you pointed to, has led to a situation where within a matter of months, right, uh, the post office could be in very dire straits, emerging the, uh, the need for us kind of a bailout or some kind of support, prompting President Trump to say, the post office is a joke and doesn't deserve support at all. So I, I wonder if you could uh, bring us up to the present in terms of how you understand this, this current moment, the current needs, uh, you're, you're doing a lot to help us think in a new way about the narrative we've heard. But what is the immediate situation that you, as you understand it, and what needs to be done, or what you know, what should not be done, and what needs to be done in your view right now to kind of get through this current impasse? No, I, I appreciate that. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the postal service is designed that its that its income would come from the revenue it got from selling stamps and services. Well, in a financial crisis, as we saw in two thousand eight and nine, and particularly now. Uh, with the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic, business is, is falling way off. People just aren't uh, doing mailings. Businesses are closed. They're not sending out catalogs. They're not doing uh, big advertising mails. People aren't even able to go to the, uh, the corner store and, and, and buy a, a card for their grandchild's birthday or whatever. So business is way off. Business is off. Income is off. Um, it may be 30 to 50 percent. The postmaster general, the outgoing postmaster general, went before Congress on April 9th and made the case that the Postal Service would need $25 billion to get through this period so that there would still be a Postal Service once th this crisis ended and also asked for uh, uh, additional funds you know, to upgrade the, 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 the trucks and the infrastructure and other, they call you know shovel-ready projects, and then the possibility to borrow money. So uh, this was hopefully going to be in, in the first of the, of the uh, uh, packages that was going out there. 
but uh, 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 President Trump, uh, uh, who has his, uh, I don't know how you describe what he has, but, but anyway, he has a, a personal vendetta against the post office because of his uh, animus towards uh, Bezos and because uh, uh, he owns the Washington Post, so he was getting involved with the business that the post office was doing with Amazon. But basically he came out and said that he would uh, veto any package that had any kind of relief for the postal service at all, because they were asking for the, the, the 25 billion in extra money. He did say uh, that in the, in the package that Congress had in the package, which he signed, was it would allow the post office in its current financial situation to borrow up to $10 billion, because they could borrow the money. He had no problem giving Boeing $25 million, $25 billion with no strings attached. And you know they had planes falling out of the sky that killed hundreds of people. But the Postal Service that everybody uh, uh, relies upon couldn't get the money. So anyway, so there was that package for the $10 billion. But right after that, Trump decided that uh, that he wasn't going to allow, he and Mnuchin weren't going to allow the Postal Service to borrow that money unless they raised the prices of their package business four to 500 percent, which is an ins insane anyway, it would just knock them out of the business anyway, and also allow Mnuchin to take over the powers from the Postal Board of Governors and the uh, uh, Postal Regulatory Commission, where he would actually be in charge of managing the Postal Service choosing, you know, executives who'd be working there, determining policy, and of course then like trying to re redo the, the uh, contracts with the union. So it was just an outrageous wish okay. list, but basically at this point, we're at the situation now where uh, they, they talked about the Postal Service maybe running out of money in September, and, and, and Trump not allowing the, the Postal Service to get any relief or to even borrow the money that Congress said that they could borrow. Okay. So, la so last Friday in the uh, HEROES package, uh, HR 6800, which passed the House uh, by whatever it was, 10 or 11 votes, uh, there is money and relief in that package uh, for the uh, Postal Service, the 25 billion it needs to exist and, and the $10 billion that it could borrow with no strings. and other money, but at this point, uh, McConnell, you know, said that, that that it was a you know ridiculous piece of legislation, and Trump said that he would veto it. So right now we're in a situation what we what we need is people to contact their senators, particularly people who live in red states, and just express the the need that they have for the postal service to present the, their, their their needs, so that there'll be pressure on senators to maybe have to say, wait a minute, what am I going to do? Um, you know, right. please Trump or actually please my constituents. So Chuck, on that note, I mean, you mentioned, and, and it has got some news play. I've heard about it too, right? Trump's, you know, uh, animosity towards Bezos and Amazon and taking that out of the post office. But my suspicion is that, that it also goes deeper, right? That, I mean, it's not just oh, yeah. Trump. It's, it's, it's a whole line. It's, it's a whole sector of the establishment. I mean, what do you think is the are the sources of the animus uh, towards the post office? I mean, I was just just a little bit of context before this 
show, I was, you know, kind of boning up on some of the context. And I listened to a Cato Institute and Heritage Foundation debate, you know, these, these libertarian so-called capitalist right. think tanks. And they're just like salivating, I think, at the prospect of what they call freeing the postal service, right? right? And, and, and finding ways to reduce the costs of all those, those unionized employees. So I wonder if you could, if, could you help us to get, maybe think a little deeper too about where else the resistance from uh, established power comes and you know why even back in 2006 they were going after the post office with that you know almost trying to manufacture that crisis going back 14 years could you could you talk a little more about your understanding of like why the post office might be seen as a a threat or or as a target for some of these established uh you know powerful interests? well that, that, that's a very a good, good question basically there are two two reasons that, that i see one is that the post office does $70 billion in business every year, and there are commercial interests that would love to get a piece of that pie. They're also aware of the fact that the Postal Service is, uh, is labor intensive, that a lot of the, uh, the expenses go to paying the workers, the six, over 600,000 people who work for the Postal Service, and these are people who uh, get uh, you know, living wages and benefits, it's union jobs. And these, uh, I think the uh, official term for these people are these greedy bastards look at, at that money and say, wait a minute, if we can just get in there, break these unions, get you know, at-will people working for minimum wage, all that money that isn't, isn't gonna go to the government, it can go to us for profit. So that group of people who've been trying to get their hands on that money are part of the move. The other part of the move are the ideological right-wingers, the libertarians or whatever they want to call themselves, who are against big government. And they, had, they despise the post office because the post office is the best argument against what they're talking about because the postal service actually serves the people and people respond positively. I mean, the, the latest Pew uh, survey about the most popular uh, government agency, the Postal Service had a 91% rating, far wow. higher than any other uh, uh, federal agency, and it was 91% across the board, Republicans, Democrats, independent. So people are really aware of what the Postal Service brings. So it's a, a, a question of, of, of of people trying to get their hands on the business of the Postal Service for their own riches and also to um, uh, uh, do in this popular uh, uh, government agency. And they work together because the, the people that you mentioned, I mean, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato, they get funding. Where does that funding come from? Interestingly enough, I think it was in 1973 that the Heritage Foundation was formed. They had a case against the post office back then. They've been issuing uh, white papers and studies and financing books against the postal service for, for, for decades, almost you know, 50 years because of their desire to uh, uh, do in this public institution, but also get their hands on, on the business for their, for their wealthy benefactors. And it's just come to a head now under this period with uh, the, the Trump administration, but it didn't start with him and it didn't start in 2006. And they've done so many things. I mean, they've convinced people that the Postal Service is, is in trouble 
uh, financially because of the internet. Well, the internet, you know, they still haven't figured out a way when you buy something to get the package through the computer. It has to be delivered to your house, and that's done by, you know, postal workers. And also the fact is, is that the, the, uh, the commercial people, UPS and FedEx and DHL, they only want to deliver where it's profitable. So they put in millions of packages to have the postal service deliver for that last mile uh, to, to people's homes and businesses because the postal service goes everywhere and they don't want to have to go to where it's not uh, 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 profitable. So, uh, I mean, the, 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 the hypocrisy of all of this stuff, but it's worked because some people have been convinced that the postal, work, postal service is in trouble. But one other thing, if I'm going on too long, stop me. But well, you know, if I could just jump in there, just to sure. underscore one thing, right? I mean, I think it's really important. And, and there's, a, there's a connection to public higher education here too, a field I know, I know better from firsthand experience. And I'm actually a union rep for some of the workers that you know, include Clarissa, who will be our next guest in a, in a few minutes. Um, but it's just the way in which what, what is made to appear in the media and the dominant media and the public as a, a kind of financial crisis is really a kind of concocted political crisis, right? Or a, a product of legislation that has, you know, foisted debt or foisted costs on an institution that makes it appear inefficient, right? And then of course can become the prelude to like, to actually undermining it so it can't do its job as well, right? Eroding the public support uh, for it, make it easier to, to kill. So, I mean, it, it's a familiar pattern. I mean, it seems like it reminds me also of things that have been attempted against Social Security, right? Uh, and, and, you know, it, and I, I mean, the point you make about the threat that the, or the way in which the postal services gives the lie to a lot of this free market fundamentalist ideology, I think is really powerful. I mean, what I would want to ask you is, is it also possible that they see in the post office the possibility of expanded public services? I mean, this idea of postal banking caught my eye. The idea that the Postal Service has, and still does in some ways, and could actually do a lot of the things that currently are mainly done by for-profit uh, banking institutions, including like loan sharks in a lot of communities that don't have other options for transferring yeah. money. Um, do you see, I mean, is there the possibility that the post office could actually expand its services in ways that would be not only what the model it is now, but actually in that sense a threat to profit-making entities? Uh, in, in the realm of banking, say? Is that another reason that they have it in for you? Well, of course, because the, the Postal Service had a postal savings system from 1913 to 1966, where people could have uh, a savings accounts at the post office with you know, billions of uh, dollars uh, in, in accounts. And uh, it was always considered a threat and it was you know, stopped for that reason. There's all kinds of things that the Postal Service could do. But right now, in, in terms of uh, what it could do to, to fight against the payday lenders and the check cashers would be uh, amazing. There are all kinds of things because there's you know, 31,000 post offices still in the country, plus you know, a, 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 a trained workforce that could uh, be expanded. So of course it's always a threat. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the Postal Service delivers 1.2 billion medical prescriptions every year that keep people alive, uh, keep them sane, and keep them from excruciating pain. What happens to those people if the post office stops? Will these other services be delivering those things too? It won't happen.
that's an important point. I mean, as you point out, even some of the deliveries of these private services sound like they're parasitic and dependent on your on the public institution to begin with. If if the public institution goes away, what what happens to those to those deliver those unprofitable deliveries? Right? They either they either don't happen or they get super expensive. Right? Um, yeah. On the medical note, I mean, I think it's it, we. I would be remiss if I didn't raise also the fact that postal workers are essential employees that have continued to work throughout this COVID pandemic. I mean, how has your work or how has the work of the people you represent changed during this COVID uh, stretch that we've been in and that we will be in for some time? I understand there have been many people afflicted with COVID and, and even some that have passed away. Could you, could you speak to that a little bit, Chuck? Oh, uh, for, uh, 14, over 1,400 postal workers uh, have gotten the, the, the COVID and over 60 have died. So people go to work. I mean, that's, that's what postal workers do. They go to work uh, during a, a, a pandemic. They go, go to work uh, when there's uh, storms. They go to work when there, there are threats. I mean, postal workers, that's what they do. They take the, the, the work uh, seriously. And in this case, they were going to work and not knowing if, what they were going to be getting, if they were bringing home the disease to their family. And at first, the Postal Service was no better than Amazon or McDonald's in terms of providing PPE and really dealing what had to be dealt with. The difference between the postal workers and Amazon and McDonald's is that we have a union and we were able to move on our contractual collective bargaining rights and get after management to do what they had were necessary to do. So people, they got the PPE, and they got the ability to, you know, to get take time off and sick leave, and if they were going to be, uh, uh, you know, affected by you know, childcare and whatever. So that was a big difference. But the but postal workers will, like any other frontline essential people, were going out there, traveling to work at all hours because postal workers work, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week, and going there and at first not even having you know, gloves and masks and whatever else, or even having a system to, to clean what, where they were working and all that, all that came to pass and whatever, but it was still, still a, a situation where they, they, their, their, you know, lives were at risk. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, listening to that Heritage Foundation debate, I mean, I was struck by, and I, I don't, I can't vouch for these numbers, but they were, one of their real, you know, grievances with the post office was that, of the revenue y'all take in, 80 to 90% of it goes directly to, they said, to employee pay and benefits, as opposed to the private sector, where they have that number down to about 25% or 30%, which, I mean, from their, from their standpoint, they were saying that's a problem, right? But really what they were saying is unionized employees have managed to actually get a fair deal for their employees, including some rights to vacation time, sick time, and and that means that actually a larger percentage of the, the postal, you know, the, the revenue that comes in actually goes to the workers that do the work. I mean, it's, it's a totally upside down way of viewing things to me. And from my standpoint, that sounds good, right? Rather than the money going to profit taking wow. shareholders and CEOs, right? I mean, that's more of a comment than a question, but I guess um, your, your emphasis so far has been really supporting the HEROES Act right now and putting pressure on red state senators right now to, to try to push this funding through for the Postal Service, this popular, very popular institution. Is there anything else besides supporting that 
Heroes Act that you would say people could do right now, people who are not necessarily postal workers themselves, may be in unions, may not be? Right. Um, what, do you, what else could people do to show their solidarity and support for, for these frontline workers and, and the institution? Um, well, well, what we see is to say thank you, acknowledge what they're doing. I mean, people are doing that all around the country to uh, letter carriers and uh, window clerks and truck drivers and whatever, going up and giving them you know, a, a card that their kid made or, or a box of cookies or something of that nature to say, yes, we're aware of what you're doing. We're aware of how dependent we are upon you and we want to acknowledge that. But really, un un unfortunately, the only thing that we can do, I mean, it doesn't have to be part of the HEROES Act. It could be a separate legislation or something, but somehow we have to get through to, to, to the, the people who uh, are in control of the purse strings that the Postal Service needs money, not just to pay people, but to pay the gasoline that the trucks use and to deal with the expenses that's going on and also the increased expense that the Postal Service had during uh, the endemic, but uh, the pandemic. But right now, uh, what, what's needed is, is emergency funds. It's gotten to this point now that uh, 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 there needs to be an, an infusion of cash and it has to come soon or the Postal Service will be damaged and then the privatizers will really have the in uh, to maybe make some kind of a push on some of our friendly legislators to say, well, if you want to get something from us, you know, maybe you will have to, you know, open up the mailboxes to private companies, or maybe, you know, take away collective bargaining rights from the workers or something like that. We don't want it to get to that point because we understand what, what the Postal Service means to people, particularly people who have been you know, staying at home, getting package deliveries, what it means to uh, 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 senior people, disabled people, small business people, they don't have the options to go elsewhere if there's no postal service. I mean, people use the postal service uh, to send packages to their home country. They use the postal service to uh, uh, send uh, important stuff to people and their families who's incarcerated. And also the Postal Service for uh, veterans, that's how the, the VA sends out their medications. Also, it's important to note that the Postal Service is the largest employer of veterans in the country. Over 100,000 postal workers wow. are veterans. And if you look at you know, the, the proportion of you know, women who work in the post office, that the African-Americans in the post office are double what their percentage is in the population in the country. So the Postal Service really has provided uh, a tremendous uh, ability yep. for people to improve themselves by getting good union jobs. So it's an important part of, of the overall community and, 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 and the financial well-being. Thank you, Chuck. Yeah, I think I'm glad that you made that that closing point about just the, the diversity and, and the, you know, of, of that, of the workforce there and the importance of, of the Postal Service as a model in that regard as well. Um, I, 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 just, I just have to add one thing. If I leave this out, I'm remiss. All right, real quick, and then we're going to bring okay. in Carissa. Voting by mail. Without a Postal Service, there can't be voting by mail. The biggest enemy against voting by mail is Donald Trump. This could be another motivation for his wanting to damage the post office so they can't be voting by mail this November.
That's a, I'm really glad you mentioned that too. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we will have Bill Fletcher on as a guest to talk about the threats to democracy that we are facing uh, in this country during the COVID moment, including but not limited to the struggle over mail-in in voting and the, and the dangers of going to the polls and how that may affect and suppress voter turnout uh, as it is uh, at you know, federal and local levels. Uh, thank you very much for all, all of that, um, all of that, Chuck. Uh, I mean, I think the, the HEROES Act that you've mentioned, and I hope everyone will internalize that and take some kind of action to push for that funding to pass wherever we may live, um, or contact relatives that live where the senators are not supporting it. Uh, that's also a transition point to our to our next speaker, and at least or at least to the institution that our our, our next speaker, our next guest, uh, has been a part of. That that being public higher education here in Massachusetts, right? That that Heroes Act also calls for money for state and local governments to help them uh, take up the the cost burdens created by COVID and the reduced tax revenues that have resulted from the economic uh, recession or depression that we've been headed into. And so that is a transition point between, between both the struggle to save the post office and a struggle to save, and to save the quality of public higher education. I'd like to welcome Clarissa Eaton, my colleague from UMass Boston, onto the show. Clarissa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, great. I, I, I know you've, you've been doing a lot of listening. Uh, we've gone about a half an hour. We'll go about as long with you. And then after that, we'll open it up for questions from our from our live audience here on Zoom. So everyone just uh, keep, your, keep your thoughts together and we can come back to Chuck as well as to Clarissa when we come to Q&A. Uh, Clarissa, I, I, uh, I, it's good to see you and to meet you in person. We've been actually corresponding for, the, for over a week now. Since last week, right, just as classes were ending at UMass Boston where we both work, right? UMass Boston sent letters of quote-unquote non-reappointment, a kind of fancy word for layoff, non-layoff layoff notices, to over 300 non-tenure track faculty member uh, members, including yourself. And I learned about you by when you publicly identified as one of the people that had received them, and we got into a conversation which subsequently, um, you know, I don't want to say that just that led, but things as they felt fell out, you ended up writing a terrific piece about what had happened to you that is published in Inside Higher Ed, which I hope we can share here and on our website. And that's how I kind of got to know you just in the last week. Krista, could you uh, walk us through a little bit of what the last week has been like for you and walk us through some of the points that you make in that great short essay that you wrote for Inside Higher Ed? The last week has been an incredible challenge because it went from the stress of finishing up a semester where we had to move to a remote format. And anybody who's worked in education knows that the end of the semester is insane anyway. Definitely a bittersweet moment spending that last class online with my students to the very next day receiving that non-reappointment letter email. And that caused in me a kind of reaction where I felt this intense empathy, not just with my colleagues who also received that email, but also more understanding of my students who have been in many of the same situations, feeling slightly invisible, marginalized, unable to speak for themselves, and as if they had not been consulted. And I think one of the things that made me write 
that article that you mentioned is that I had just finished telling my students that their words have power, that they have the right to write about things, and they actually have the responsibility to voice what is bothering them, to use their voice and to use it in a powerful way. And so having just finished talking to my students about that, I felt that I had the responsibility to voice not only what I was feeling, but what many of my colleagues were feeling also. So then things kind of blew up from there. And that yeah, what, was, what has the response been to the piece that you wrote? And again, I recommend people to check it out at Inside Higher Ed. I think it was just posted in the chat box for those who are with us live. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, I think it's a powerful piece. What, what, was, what has been the response to it, uh, both from your colleagues, from uh, students, from others that have read it around the country? Um, you know, it seems like you struck a chord. Has that been your sense? It, it really has. From my colleagues, a lot of my colleagues have um, thanked me for having the courage, which I didn't really think of as courage, to speak up about a situation that they were also in. But I think that, especially for contingent faculty, we're used to just staying quiet and just do your job and hope everything goes well. And so actually speaking up and saying this is a situation that is very difficult for all of us and that in many ways is bothersome yeah. um, created a great outpouring of support from so many of my colleagues and it, it was great to have that kind of response people that i have worked with for the past few years and people that i really barely knew have all responded very positively and also support from my department and from people whose jobs are not in jeopardy, who are just trying to offer some kind of encouragement and saying this doesn't seem like the right thing to be doing. Yeah, I mean, that in fact was one of the arguments of, of your piece. I mean, right. you, you tell a personal narrative of, of why you've cared so much about this institution and your students, but you ultimately make the argument or the suggestion to the reader that this is not just like harmful, but it's wrong, right? Could you say a little more about about what you see is wrong here? Uh, I mean, both in terms of the immediate non-layoff layoff notice, but perhaps on a, on a structural level as well. I mean, you being one of the hundreds of people we have at UMass now that are labeled as associate lecturers, right? Could you say a little more about the work that you do and why you believe it is so wrong that, not, that you and so many others have been treated in the way that you're being treated? So it isn't just me. Um, there are so many people in my position. We work full-time. I'm a full-time English teacher. I interact, because I teach composition one and two, I interact with mostly incoming freshmen. Almost anybody who enters the university is going to go through a composition class. And so we're kind of the frontline faculty. We're the ones who have the most connection and the greatest connection to the students and the ones who have the time to focus just on students. And we are doing the same kind of work, but yet we are in a way invisible because people don't even know, or students generally don't know who their teachers are, what their, whether their jobs are in jeopardy or not. And in my department, at least, there really is no difference in the way I'm treated. I don't feel, I think I said in this article, I don't feel that I'm treated as a lesser entity. We all have a common goal. This is what a public university is supposed to do, 
we're all there because we want to teach. So what happens is that there is just one group of people that is a lot easier to dismiss. It's a lot easier to say, we just won't reappoint you without any discussion with departments, with us, with students, because there is no contract there that says that we need to be reappointed or we need to be consulted. Right. So the feeling is mostly that we're doing the same type of job, but we're yet in a different position. Yeah, and that really, I mean, I think speaks to one of the broader point, right, which is that there are, there are deep ongoing structural problems. Right. Many, many of us see them as problems, inequities within higher education. And a moment like this COVID crisis exposes that, right? It's not necessarily a new problem, but it exposes this, this inequity in how faculty are treated, paid, in, in terms of job security. As I understand it, you taught nine courses, more than four courses a semester. Right. You, in fact, taught five courses in the most recent semester, writing, yes. writing intensive first year writing courses. Is this correct? Oh, yes. Right. Yes. In fact, even as you wrote this piece in Inside for Inside Higher Ed, you were grading 50, 60, God knows how many yes. students with grading deadlines upon you. Yes, and commenting on those. So there, there's a great time commitment there. And it, it is a full time job. Um, I actually have another job anyway, but it's a full-time job. I'll tell you, it frustrates, as someone who is, who is also working as a non-tenure track faculty member, the one who has been at UMass Boston long enough with our union support to have a, what we call a continuing appointment or a continuing contract, right? But I'm still, I mean, working this terrain for, for years now, I'm shocked how often even people who are in the labor movement or academic progressives make the slip to think that if you're non-tenure track or contingent, you must be a part-timer. Right. Right. To which I say, I actually, I think we're often, we're, we're double timers, actually, uh, you know, by a certain measure, right? It's, it's not right. the lack of time work, it's the lack of certain other types of security and equality, right? Which uh, even, if, even if the departmental level is culturally really friendly, as I think English has been to yes. me as well, right? There are these, these deeper, uh, deeper problems in these institutions. So, uh, I mean, what... Clarissa, I mean, maybe we, if we can loop back a little bit, I mean, you talked a little bit about your students and how important you think uh, it is the work you have been do doing, teaching them in the last several years. But you yourself are a UMass, Boston, UMass story, a UMass Boston, yes. a UMass, a public higher ed story. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own kind of educational path as you've identified as a kind of non-traditional student and what that might say about the importance, the transformative power of the very public higher education that is now, you know, not unlike the Postal Service, coming under a kind of political and economic threat. Could you talk about your own story and then maybe, maybe link it to the, uh, what you see as the importance of public education? Oh, certainly. So I, I did take a very non-traditional path to become a teacher. Um, I actually was pre-med when I was 16 and dropped out of college and started a ballet studio and then got married and had two children and as a single mom i could never afford to go back to college and i could never afford the time or the money to get my own education so i got my two children through their college careers and then desperate to go back i went to umass lowell and got my bachelor's degree there actually i got a dual degree in psychology and english 
But what was great about that was just the support that was there for non-traditional students, that it didn't feel like I was out of place. Being at a public university was absolutely phenomenal. I could engage my mind and meet with other people, both students and teachers, in a way that I hadn't been able to for 25 years. And that's what made me then go to UMass Boston and get my master's degree. And it was, again, just a great experience. So I ended up at UMass teaching as a grad student there before I got a job there teaching English. And the flexibility of the university and also the diversity is what makes it so good for non-traditional students like myself. But also it's what makes it so attractive. And I think this is the connection you're talking about. It's what makes it so attractive for teachers like myself because we are a reflection of the students. Many of us, many of my colleagues also went to UMass Boston before teaching there. And it, they'll say the same type of thing that they chose to stay there because there is such a diverse student body and such an open-mindedness that even if students don't come in with that, it can be fostered. That it's a responsibility of teachers to help them embrace that. And wouldn't it be nice if the teachers that are that are doing this transformative work were actually given the job security to yeah. know that they, so they could spend their summers working on improving their syllabi, whether it's going to be online or it's yeah. going to be in person in the fall, right? Depending on public health concerns, yeah. right? Rather than having to worry and scramble for yes. unemployment, health insurance, what if scenarios. To be clear, the administration at UMass Boston has said it's quite possible that many of these right. people will be hired back as they were four years ago when we had a similar, uh, you know, kind of crisis that, that pushed us into this, another 400 non-layoff layoffs. Um, but there is no yes. guarantee right now. So I guess I, I'd like to ask you right, right now, Clarissa, you know, as the semester wraps up, as you wrap up that grading, what, what are your thoughts and feelings about where you stand now? Uh, what, what does the summer look like now versus what it looked like before? And also, what are you aware of in terms of uh, avenues for fighting back? I mean, I, I, we can talk about that a little bit too. I'm, on the, I'm involved in the union pushback here. Uh, but what, would you, you know, what, are, what does your future right now look like in light of this, this administrative uh, top-down decision? Well, my immediate plans for the summer have definitely changed because I had already set up plans to work with my colleagues to come up with contingency plans if we had to move online or if we had to create a hybrid course format so that people in the composition department are collaborating to make things work better for students. I mean, we put a Band-Aid on the spring. Now we want to have several plans for whatever has to happen. I wanted to be a part of that. I had planned to be a part of that. I can't be a part of that if I'm not actually working at the university. Um, so my summer now looks like scrambling to get as much money through teaching private ballet classes as I possibly can, just in case I don't have a job or health insurance in the fall. Um, chances are I'll have a course or two, at least in the fall, that definitely changes the situation because at, at UMass Boston, you have to work more than half time to get benefits. So that means I, if, unless I get two courses, I don't have health insurance. 
and you know, we in the union will do all we can to fight to get you know to get you and others the the you know the uh, the support that you that you, that we can. We have had over two hundred faculty members sign a letter of support, right, protesting cuts. I, I think we'll probably get that up to a major, and hopefully a majority of faculty, and do everything we can to make this a, a public issue. I mean, I think one thing that that people listening should and and watching should should be reminded of, right. We might think at a lot of private universities right now, there are cutbacks happening. Um, and what's being said is enrollments are gonna take such a hit right right now. Or, or, or they're saying dorm costs, the refunded dorm money that had to be paid back to students and their families because of COVID, uh, people moving out of the residence halls, right? Has given the university such a hit. Neither of those two are really a major factor at UMass Boston so far, right? From as far as we hear, enrollments seem to be relatively strong for the fall, though there certainly is uncertainty. And we don't have the kind of dorm revenue dependency, right? That uh, many universities do. We have a dorm, it's new, but still we're essentially a commuter institution. And in fact, if past uh, recessions are any, any guide, Right, we actually may gain students because we're a, a, a more affordable quality option for people who may be not wanting to, to go to a private or not wanting to live in a dorm someplace. So it's really important to keep in mind to bring it back to the, the link with back to Chuck too, that this is very much a matter of public funding, right? The real uncertainty we face right now at UMass Boston is not so much the, uh, the enrollment or, and it's not at all related to dorm revenue, right. but it's really a matter of what will happen at the state and federal level to get us the money we need to continue our operations, right? So, um, you know, I don't know, Clarissa, if you have any thoughts on that, I know that you've been, it's more been a trial by storm for you thrown into this issue. It wasn't necessarily your, your, your dissertation topic or something that you wanted to get into, but do you have right. thoughts on the issue of, of how public funds are being allocated or not allocated now? I mean, how has this your own kind of experience shed a light on how you see these debates going on at the state level, at the federal level about where money, where millions or billions will flow and where it will not and why that matters. It's funny because in my own mind, I'm working at several different levels and one level is the importance to create a conversation because the money is going as far as I see, and I'm not the no most knowledgeable person on this. I have to do what my I always tell my students to do and research more, but as I see it, the money is going towards administrative costs and not towards what will actually benefit students. And there's the other issue that it doesn't seem that students or a good portion of faculty are consulted so they're simply left out of the conversation. And I think that that's what struck a point with me is that as an English teacher, I am constantly advising writers to create a conversation. Even if you don't think that you can sway somebody's thought, you have the responsibility to at least get a conversation started and have other people take part in it. So even if I'm not that knowledgeable about what's happening with the funding, can I get people talking about it? Which might be throwing it back at you. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's absolutely crucial, right? I mean, it is true that, I mean, these, these, uh, 
about 25%, more than 25% of our faculty at UMass Boston have been told, maybe, maybe not a place for you in the fall, right? Okay. Meanwhile, upper administration has yet, to my knowledge, to take any kind of meaningful pay cut. I heard a rumor that a few people may have foregone raises a few years back, uh, and that's been touted as if it's a kind of shared sacrifice. But really, um, we haven't seen that kind of shared sacrifice at the top. And frankly, Massachusetts, contrary to its liberal image, cats are welcome here too. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that, uh, you know, uh, that UMass, the, the Massachusetts, you can look this up, you know, uh, anyone watching can look this up, but where, contrary to its liberal, progressive, pro-intellectual self-image, Massachusetts actually gives less money per capita to public higher education at all levels than most other states. In fact, we were as low as 46th in the country, right? In terms of per capita allotments, uh, you know, in terms of uh, tax money as a portion of the total GDP of the state, right? In other words, a lot of wealthy people in Massachusetts, a lot of struggling people too, but of the portion of wealth that's actually given to public higher ed, meaning community colleges, state colleges and universities, and the UMass system, right, the three-part three, three part system, we're actually near the bottom of the barrel, right? Yeah. Which is to say, I mean, many would say we need to address that deeper problem in addition to fighting for, for those who have been targeted, right? right? There is a bigger picture, and that's always the, the challenge of how to fight the immediate fight while raising the deeper structural problems. And I think pieces like yours, what you wrote, are so essential, essential to that. People have to start somewhere. And often it's that immediate experience of someone or secondhand, first or secondhand, that gets people to start to feel and to think about why this actually matters. Uh, I know we have some questions from people that are coming in on the chat box here. I think one uh, question is from Karen uh, about students. Uh, before we go to Karen, I wanted to ask you, have you let your own students know about the situation? Um, and if, you know, and how, what's your thought about how do you remain a teacher at the same time you are by default, whether or not you want to becoming a kind of testimonial advocate. How do you, how do you think about your role as a teacher and your role as a, you know, uh, as speaking out in this way? How do you, how do you think of the relationship between those two roles? Uh, right now I'm learning as I go and kind of compartmentalizing because honestly, I don't even know what would be appropriate to say. I have not told my students anything about the non-reappointment letter. Um, I, again, ironically, with my students on the last day of class, had them request of me that I find a way to let the administration know how they felt about a remote, remote format, what they were feeling about the fall, and ideas and suggestions they had. Because the students in all four of my sections said, nobody's talking to us about it. It, it, here we are as students at the university and it seems that nobody cares about what we think and so since I keep telling them well it's your responsibility to write about it they wrote out a document for me which they wanted me to get somewhere so <laughs> I have that on my mind yeah. I have not told them that I am in a similar situation and that 300 other teachers are in a similar situation of simply not being heard or referenced at all yeah. or consulted. Um, and, it, and it really points out, doesn't it, how the attack on instructors, right, um, is also an attack on the students, right? right. Say that the fact your students in all your classes opened up to you, right, 
by virtue of your own teaching, despite the struggle of going remote suddenly as we had to going online, um, that the students, because of the small class size, but also because of your work, right, felt like they could actually communicate this. And, and it really just seems like, I mean, it's so often, you know, there are people who want to try to pit students against faculty, right? As if, oh, right. you know, faculty should be paid less, so the tuition could be reduced, right? Pitting kind of customer against employee. But really what you're pointing out is that you are seen as, as an advocate, as a, as a resource for your students, as their way of having a voice, developing their own voice and communicating through you. And, and so really it seems that the attack on employees, on faculty, is an attack on the students right. too. Is that the way you see it? I see it, it as members of an academic community. We have more in common than we have differently. I don't see it as a student or teacher issue. I don't see anything as a student or teacher issue. I see us as working together on different levels. And so one thing that does concern me is that the students who see so many contingent faculty, so many people who are associate lecturers that are more like them, if 300 of those people leave, they're not going to find that representation on campus. They're not going to find the people that they connect to the people that it's easy to talk to, the people who are kind of like them. That, for example, being a single mom, I know what it's like when a student in my class has to leave or can't get childcare. Having struggled financially, I have that understanding. Other teachers have that connection with them too. And a lot of the teachers who have that connection are the ones that are associate lecturers or lecturers. So they're not going to see that reflection of themselves, which means the students lose the teacher diversity yeah so <laughs> that's a powerful it's a powerful point like in other words the very thing that makes uh some people feel like oh it's okay to let you go you're you're more precarious you you just got here you've struggled you you're already struggling so it's okay to right. cut you. that's actually part of what makes you such a great teacher or makes people in your position more relatable to the students right right so it just adds insult to injury here in a big way what a way to thank right? Hundreds of people that have busted their ass to keep the university running despite this unprecedented pandemic, right? Yes. All I can say right now, Clarissa, before we open it up is that, you know, solidarity to you, much respect for speaking out in the way that you did. I think you've inspired a lot of other people. I've heard from other NTT, non-tenure track faculty, who are planning to write op-eds now, partly inspired by you breaking the silence. So I think, you, you know, you're not the first one to speak out, but you won't be the last either. And, and I know as a union rep, I'm not going to rest until, you know, y'all get as much justice as we can get you in whatever form we can get it for you. Um, I would love to open up the conversation at this point to people who have been uh, with us on Zoom. It's been an hour now, and I think it would be great if we get a 15, 20 minutes of conversation uh, from people online as well, and then maybe take a few comments if we could from folks online. People may have questions for Chuck. I'm sure people may have questions for Clarissa. Maybe we could take two or three uh, and, uh, and then bring it back to the guests and maybe do a couple rounds of that uh, if people would like. Does that sound like a plan? Uh, who would like to speak first? Karen, I see Karen would like to speak. Karen, are you there? Following up on the question about involving students. Great. I'm retiring from a private university where I taught, but I was basically staffed. And, um, I think the whole employment situation at all universities is that everybody's a contractor and everybody's kind of individualized in their own teaching and research. And it seems like 
the epidemic has actually provided a way for universities to even get more money <laughs> and try to get as many grants as possible to deal with the pandemic and you know charge these horrible administrative costs. But I think it's really important if you can involve students. Um, they're known as tuition dollars to the administration, so they may care a little bit about them. And it may be useful for you and other faculty to approach them together. And at the minimum, maybe an or a letter writing campaign if that hasn't been done already. But to really try to mobilize them. And, you know, there's not much to lose right now. So I just wondered if that was a possibility. Or if others have done that, working with students. Yeah, uh, there are petitions that are circulating. Uh, my producers could probably find them. A couple are on Action Network. Uh, there are petitions, uh, open letters to Marty Meehan, the head of the UMass uh, system and the Board of Trustees, as well as uh, petitions aimed at the state and, and, and congressional representatives to support the HEROES Act from a public higher ed perspective. People can find those. We'll post them on our, on our Facebook page if, if, if they don't get up during the uh, conversation here. Uh, but I think that's crucial. Um, so the issue of involving students and what and 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 how they can be an actual source of power in this moment, as well as perhaps a source of uh, you know uh, condolence or or emotional support. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm not seeing another question quite yet. Clarissa, do you want to take that? I mean, do you have you thought at all about how students could actually help to amplify your power? And and actually, Chuck, I'd like to ask maybe that for you too. How have so-called customers, the people you serve? How have they been, uh, how have they weighed in in ways that have mattered in your experience with the post office in the past? How have the people supported you and your fellow workers? Uh, but first, Clarissa, maybe we can go to you. What about making the students, uh, getting the students active? Um, honestly, I've been uncertain of the ethics of it, <laughs> of being able to even talk to students about the fact that personally I might not have a job um, because, I was the one grading them. <laughs> so right. that, that seems like there, there's a, an ethical issue there now that grades are done. Maybe there isn't anymore. Um, but if there were a way to contact students, I know that so many of them, especially at UMass Boston, really do want to be involved and be outspoken. They believe in using their own voice, their power, to try to accomplish something. And yes, they may need some tutoring in how to do it, but I think they want to be involved. So, yeah, do do that? who's got ideas? Absolutely, right? I mean, I think it's, it's a challenging thing. Maybe once grades are in, you can speak a little yes. more frankly, right? <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, but it's, it's a thing. I mean, I think faculty have many different views on it. It could be the topic of a show itself, how to, how to negotiate politics and the pedagogical uh, responsibility at the same time. I think it's important. Uh, Chuck, do you want to speak to that in terms of just the, the, the ways in which the people you serve as customers can also be political or have been political allies in, in moments of crisis like this? Well, yes. In the past, I mean, there have been so many attacks against the public postal service over the years. There was a time uh, that they wanted to close post offices and eliminate mail processing centers. And according to the law under Title 39, the Postal Service had to have public hearings. And they would try to have them in out-of-the-way places and not publicize them and whatever. 
but seeing the people come out for, to these public hearings and to see the people coming with their walkers and tubes up their noses and whatever and coming to talk how important the public postal service, their post office, what, what was to them was, was extraordinary to see. And the, the, the uh, rallies and going to uh, legislators, but part of the way that teachers, not higher education, uh, got involved with us is one of the things that was attempted by the Postal Service was to create basically fake post offices in staple stores a few years ago and to hire non-union uh, uh, people to work them. And we had a big campaign to boycott staples. And part of the reason that the success uh, of that happened was because of the support we got from the teachers union, the American Federation of Teachers and the NEA were telling their uh, teachers, many of whom buy supplies for their own students because this, they don't have enough uh, at, at home to do that and the teachers do it, not to buy their uh, uh, supplies at Staples to go somewhere else. And that was a, a, a big help. So in this struggle, to keep a people's post office has gone on for many years. The public, the customers, allies have gotten involved because it's important, you know, as Clarissa is, you can't do it alone. You need to have support and people also, by what your example is, other people will come forward. It's important for people to see that there are other people that it matters to and that they can actually take action and, and, and people coming together and uniting around an issue, you know, whether it's at, at your, 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 your college or the postal service or you know, public education or uh, social security or the VA or whatever, that it matters that this is our place. We're the people, we're the ones who own this. We can't have whatever these managers are or these uh, uh, people who wanna control our institutions and take away funding from us succeed and the people you know uh, uh, can win and the people will win yeah and i think you know one of the challenges for us in higher ed right now is to restore i think in people's imagination their sense that that education higher education is and should be a right just like the post office just like K-12 education, just like Social Security. Unfortunately, I think both politicians and even some of the people that run our so-called public higher education institutions have themselves fallen into a way of thinking and talking and even advocating for our institutions, marketing them as if they're private too, right? right. And, and I think the danger is that even the students, as tuition goes up, right, because public funding goes down, tuition goes up, sometimes students end up thinking, that it, it isn't, they don't maybe even lose track of the fact that it's supposed to be a public institution, right? So a kind of rift can open up. And in fact, a lot of people I think want students and their parents to think of their higher ed instructors as, you know, uh, through a kind of uh, customer lens, right? Rather than through a kind of pub, the right, the, the lens of like a public right, right? A public service that everyone should have a right to. And I just think that's, I mean, that's something I think I struggle with, even as though I will let my students in on this, getting them to break down the way education should be a right, not just something you can pay for if you have the money, right? 
um, that, that itself, I think, is a challenge uh, and, and, and one we need to take up if we really want to mobilize uh, the public in the way that we need you to, to win these fights. I would love to have public hearings, mandatory public hearings, every time they want to cut workers or raise tuition in public higher ed, right? I don't think we have that on the books, but maybe we should. Uh, maybe we need to organize those hearings ourselves, even if they're not state mandated. Uh, Linda, we have Linda, another colleague from UMass Boston, actually, and a co-producer of the show as well. Uh, my partner and colleague and comrade, Linda Liu, is on the Zoom with some very relevant experience and some thoughts to share. Linda, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, and I just wanted to thank Clarissa, especially, for uh, coming today and also for writing that piece, which I read and it was wonderful. Um, thanks so much for sharing it. Um, and I just also wanted to say, not just to you, but to, um, but to anyone else who's watching is that there, these kinds of layoffs come in waves. Um, so four years ago, there was another wave, an earlier wave of layoffs, uh, even more NTTs were laid off about 400 and I was one of them, um, or rather I should say non-reappointment letters, right? So, um, and that really blindsided me and took me, uh, took me by surprise. Um, I think I was sick to my stomach when I got, when I got the email. Um, but what also happened to me uh, throughout that summer was I just got really into the union movement, the faculty student, the, the, the faculty union. Um, and I just felt like there were so many people there who, who felt that this was also wrong. And they weren't just NTTs, they were uh, faculty from all different ranks. And I, I just felt like that was a really good way for me to get through um, a really challenging time. It's like finding these people who are willing to to fight, to fight and oppose the cuts. Yeah, if there's a good part to this, it's connecting with so many different people and finding that there are, as you said, people on many different levels and different areas of the university that see an injustice here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's back that, okay, we're talking about it. At least there's something happening. Right. Yeah. And in fact, Linda and I have been for a year before this working on trying to get an associate lecturer, lecturer solidarity committee going within the union. In fact, we had, and I think now and we, we had laid the groundwork and now I think it's just clear we need to address not just the funding of the COVID moment, which is one thing, but also this, this inequity within our union as well. The fastest growing part of our union are essentially being treated like permatemps. Right. Even as you are doing the, the, the frontline lifting of the institution. I think it's something we have, an, we have a chance to address it. We can't ignore it anymore, not that we ever should have. And um, I, you know, I, I look forward, I'm just, if it wasn't for this terrible thing, Clarissa, we wouldn't have met you maybe, and That's I would have been a ghost in the English department hallway. Now we know who, who each other is, and a lot of other people do too. Right. And there's power in that. Um, I think, do we have Bruce on the, uh, Bruce on the line wanting to ask a question? Bruce, I, do you wanna, you've had some really interesting comments in the chat box. Could I call on you, Bruce? I know you have experience with, with related issues and ac academic labor issues. Bruce, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, Bruce. Hey, everybody. Um, you know, there's publicity at a lot of places, and I, I, I really um, 
applaud the folks at UMass Austin, uh, Boston for calling attention to what's happening, not just in Massachusetts, but all across the country. Uh, in the chat, I mentioned CUNY and Rutgers, which are also places that have been very vocal. Um, it's the same in SUNY. I work at SUNY Fredonia on the western end of New York State. And uh, New York is another rich state that has historically underfunded higher education, public higher education. Um, you know, SUNY has been struggling since the Great Recession and has been under essentially austerity, um, you know, for, for a long time. So going back decades. So, you know, the question is, you know, how can we use the COVID crisis to call more attention to this and to build a broader coalitions um, to support uh, all of our public institutions? Um, so I was mentioning in the chat about car caravans um, and other strategies and tactics that, that might be suited for this moment. And I just was wondering if any of the panelists had thoughts about um, virtual or face-to-face or -face organizing that, that can build um, broad coalitions. Yeah. yeah, how about that? Let's, I mean, I'm gonna pitch that, I'm gonna piggyback on Bruce's and say, let's speak to his question. What kind of actions do you think could be done right now, even in this COVID moment, to, to push on these causes that we need to, but also what's the change that you would like to see? I mean, I, I think it's, it's this moment of crisis is also a moment to think not only about the immediate, but the, think big, right? What's the change we really wanna see? Uh, one's kind of a tactical question, what can we do right now? And one's like the bigger picture question. I, I'd love to hear before we kind of wrap up uh, from both Chuck and from Clarissa about what do you think can be done right now that maybe hasn't been said or something you wanna reemphasize? And also what's really the fundamental change What's the, a bigger, more than just right now, what's something you really like to see? What's change that's worth fighting for? What's the higher ed or what's the postal service that you would like to, that you would like to see? Clarissa, well, or, uh, Chuck, why don't you go first and then we'll finish with Clarissa. I just say that the car caravans is something that uh, our, our people around the country have been using uh, to get out there and make the point about getting people to uh, fight and support uh, their postal service and because it is theirs, they own it, and to keep it a public postal service. And the fact of you know, people coming together and understanding if there's one thing that we've seen uh, through this uh, COVID thing that's a, a, a positive, is uh, who are the people that keep the society going? It's, it's working people that are out there. It's the people who are doing the, the, the work. It's, you know, we, somehow we could survive without investment bankers and billionaires, but we needed people to be able to uh, give us, you know, food and prescriptions and people to teach uh, 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 people uh, if it was online and, and not in a classroom, but that's it. To, and to, to, to respect ourselves, to understand that we are, are the, the majority, we are the 99% and, and not to be put back by what they throw at us and come together and unite and fight for what's ours, what's, what's the public commons. It's important for us uh, to, to maintain that and to be up there and, and, and to understand what we're doing and stray, stay strong, fight and win. Thanks for that, Chuck. How about you, Clarissa? What's something you've spoken about so much, but if there's something that hasn't been mentioned that you think could be done or you'd like to see done right now? And, and, and beyond that, what's the change you would like to see if there is an opportunity in this, in this crazy crisis? What's the change you'd like to see beyond this uh, immediate moment? 
But what I see is the connection, not just between these two institutions, but between so many uh, essential parts of society that are pretty much invisible right now. And as Chuck was saying, to bring to the forefront the idea that there is a whole wave of people who should be listened to and should be a part of decision-making and a part of how we're coping with COVID, how we're coping with this crisis. And maybe that is one of the things that this is bringing attention to. It, it's not just that contingent faculty are invisible. It's not just that the postal service is treated in an invisible manner. It's that there are so many people in that situation. Mm. And so maybe we are the ones that start that type of a conversation, that start that kind of a movement to draw attention to who's really essential and what are we doing and how are we treating these people. Absolutely. Uh, an alliance of the, the formerly invisible, right? right. A we'll take off our coming out party where we you know, yeah. declare who really has the power and who's really essential. Right. I, I want to thank everyone who was involved in the conversation today so much. I also want to point out, picking up on Bruce Simon's uh, suggestion about other institutions that are very much involved in higher ed and beyond. Uh, we're gonna, our next week's show will be focused on the struggle of contingent faculty across the country, um, as well as discussions about what the terrain, the shift from in-person to online education means for the quality of education delivered and for the, the, the power of, of workers and educational uh, educators across this country. So that'll be next week's show. Um, will be on uh, education under threat and the, the, the vital struggle of contingent faculty and others to try to defend not only public higher education, but higher education across the board and quality higher education at that. Love